Between 1956 and 1966, Real Madrid won the European Cup six times, with the first five coming all in a row between 1956 and 1960. The Bernabeu became synonymous with success and the best players in world football, including Alfredo Di Stefano, Raymond Copa, Ferenc Puskas and Francisco Gento. And although domestic success continued throughout the 1970s, 80s and 90s, the club had a long existential crisis about its failure to bring the European Cup back to the Bernabeu, as clubs such as Liverpool, Ajax, Bayern Munich and AC Milan began to rival Real's total. Finally, in 1998, Real broke their 32-year hoodoo before doubling up in 1999. Amidst this background of renewed European success, Florentino Perez was elected president of Real Madrid for the first time in the year 2000. His campaign promise was to inject 270 million euros into the club and sign Luis Figo from arch-rivals Barcelona, which remarkably he duly did. The Galacticos era had officially begun with a world star signed every summer until 2006. But did the gamble pay off? That's what we're here to discuss. So Real Madrid, where do, where do we even begin? I suppose, you know, when it comes to European football, I mean, are they the biggest club in the world? Oof, that's a uh, that's a big question, isn't it? Uh, I know when I was young and we first started watching football there was an odd moment there where you're talking about all that uh you know that angst about winning that last trophy i'm not even sure i would have thought until i got to a certain point they were the biggest club in spain i, I think this that's probably an, a hint of ignorance in that because you know some of that history was was a bit old and dusty at that point in time but uh there's certainly a contender for it and i think a lot of the claim that you would make is going to come from the era that we're talking about today. I'm not sure that prior to this period and maybe a year or so before it, that we would have been seriously talking about them that way. I think you'd have been maybe if they'd kind of carried on the way they were going, maybe more a kind of a team that's better days were behind them. But you look at what they've achieved in the last 20 years since this controversial period and, you know, interesting time. And, you know, maybe, I mean, there's, they're one of a handful of teams that you can say could be, and, you know, you can count them on the fingers of one hand, but Real Madrid are on that hand for sure. Yeah, I think that's a fair, fair thing to say. And if you look at the other fingers on that hand, they all have, they all go through periods where they're, they're not at the top, you know, off the top of my head, you're talking about Liverpool, United, Juventus. Real, Juventus, Bayern. That's about, that's about it, isn't it, really? You're probably looking at those five, aren't you? You know, with yeah, slight argument for the, the, the Barca's and the Inters of, of this world, uh, maybe to be creeping in there. But yeah, I mean, what they do is even if they go through a, a period, a long period, and, you know, if you're growing up during that period, you might not see them as a, as a powerhouse. We've seen um, quite a lengthy one for Liverpool before they came... Um, flying back in the in the last few years and we're, we're seeing one for United now but it doesn't mean they've disappeared off, off that list and you know that support that they have that history that they have does keep coming back you know and we'll bring them back around again at some point and yes Real Madrid are, are certainly one of those uh, one of the biggest are they the biggest <sighs> ask a United or Liverpool fan they'll probably tell you no I mean, they'd like to think they are. I think that's the important thing, isn't it, right, with this discussion is that Real Madrid absolutely saw themselves as the biggest club in world football, as the club of the century. 
um, it's quite interesting they have this obsession with winning the European Cup that I maybe other than Liverpool I'm not sure any other club has quite that that kind of level of obsession with well what became the Champions League um, and it all comes from this you know this period when Santiago de Bernabeu was one of the instigators of the European Cup in the first place and you know they go and win it the first five times that it's a trophy they win it every year and it's only when Eusebio's Benfica team come along that that run stops and I think if you, if you look at Real Madrid's sort of history after that period ends it, it's really interesting because they're, they're still winning all the loads and loads of domestic trophies both the league and the cup um you obviously you know there is a partitioning of of success between them and, and Barcelona that that kind of goes back and forth and if you look at them in the 80s they're winning UEFA cups they're winning the league they've got all these these brilliant homegrown players like Butragueño but they're not winning the European Cup and you kind of have these clubs as we said that turn up and basically although they don't quite match you know Real in terms of winning five in a row these teams that all have multiple European Cups like Liverpool, Ajax, Bayern, Milan uh, and Milan in the early 90s would be the one that you know they were the kind of the coming force and so Madrid were I suppose seen as being a bit of a sleeping giant on the European stage because it's not like we were watching much Spanish football in the late 90s really so it was almost like a kind of I know it's kind of sky had started showing it hadn't they but it, it still it didn't have the sort of level of penetration that it would have once the kind of messy Ronaldo kind of classico era kind of kicked off so it's it's really interesting because that team that won uh the Champions League in you know 98 and 99 back to back that was a really really good team and it, it it didn't look like a team where you needed to go out go out and spend a stupid amount of money on, on Luis Figo but it was a statement of intent as much as it was about the football because Figo at that time was considered to be the best player in the world and um and Perez wanted him and you know and they went and got him so I, I think it, a way to, a way to think about this episode might be to kind of have a look at each of those players they signed in turn and talk about what they brought to the table so so Luis Figo coming off a brilliant Euro 2000 I mean what what are our memories of Figo I think the main thing that I remember is the is that transfer in many ways I mean I could we can talk about the the stuff on the pitch and we'll do in a minute but that was so contentious and the whole thing comes about if I remember right because for all Madrid's success they were not selling tickets uh, that ground was not full. And I think the quote I heard said was something along the lines of we have a you know, dusty Ferrari in the garage or something or a Rolls Royce in the garage. And, and the, the whole gambit of of that transfer is it, the, to win Perez the presidency is the extension of the commercial arm of the club. And for you know better or worse, I think you can say that absolutely does it. And it reorients the eyes of global football away from, uh, I don't even know if you'd say it was necessarily still in Italy at that point, but it makes sure that for the next few years, at least, all eyes are on Spain. Uh, as for Figo on the pitch, I think uh, the main thing I kind of remember is just those those shots that, you know, the amount of whip he could get on a ball, the amount of power he could put on a ball. It didn't almost matter where it was. If you were within 30, 35 yards of goal, you were never safe. And I just remember goalkeepers 
looking like absolute fools flapping above their heads uh, or even just stood stock still as David Seaman was in Euro 2000, uh, which I guess is just before he signs for Madrid. Yeah, so he signs for Madrid in July 2000. So it's quite, I think, for, for, for sort of English fans, you know, I don't know how much Figo we'd really seen before that tournament. Like it was kind of one of those names that, you know, people were talking about as a a great player. And I remember Clive Tilsley um, describing him as the Portugal team was walking out. And that was a really good Portugal team, wasn't it? And, and they were walking out and uh, Clive Tilsley calling him public enemy number seven, because obviously that was his, his, his shirt number. And, um, and he, England roars into a two nil lead. And then, you know, Portugal came back and won three, two. And it was a, uh, uh, an absolute masterclass by Figo in that in that game, and then you know he was one of the players of the tournament, and then of course this you know this transfer comes along, and I guess it is that borderline that's not often crossed, is it, from Barca to Real Madrid? It's so so rarely been done, and of course he was going not you know in a kind of uh, end of end of career money move. This is him at his absolute peak. So you can understand why the Barca fans were upset because, I mean, from an ego point of view, no Barca fan wants to think that Real Madrid are bigger than them and that their best player is going to go across the rivals because it the politics between those two teams, you know, with Real Madrid basically representing Franco and Barcelona representing kind of Catalan, you know, national pride, it's an incredibly, as you say, Peter, an incredibly contentious thing to have happened i mean it's if you take what you know what we kind of see as the the celtic rangers divide it's very very similar to that so um it was a remarkable yeah. move really i mean it, it felt huge at the time and that's without me probably having that understanding that i do now of just how big that rivalry is but it was it was massive it it, it sent shockwaves and like I say, it was, a, it was a real sign of intent because, you know, you, you might not be talking about the greatest Barca team ever at this point, but that's that's something that's that's just huge. And, you know, Figo was a great player, absolutely a great player, arguably the best in the world at the point, as, as has been pointed out. And in his absolute pomp, you know, it, it's yeah. there's no doubt about it. And so, yeah, that that's something. And... Yeah, not a player that I, I found particularly likable, uh, as good as he was at that point and doing stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, my Figo moment will always be um, him getting the, the shirt thrown at him. <laughs> the pig's head. <laughs> at the next Euros. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the pig's head moments. That's um, the iconic one, isn't it? At, at the new camp. But also, and I didn't realise this, it was also four bottles of whiskey being thrown at him as well. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, a brilliant um, quote from Michelle Salgado about how Figo tried to um, call him for a short corner. And Salgado <laughs> saw the missiles raining down and was like, no chance. And didn't go to the corner. Oh, short corners, no thank you. Yeah. He was quoted to say. So, There's two um, other things that I think really make this a much more contentious deals as well. One is that Figo beforehand had heard the rumour and they, yeah, they can't afford that. There's no way that they can 
afford to buy me out as from my Barcelona contract. So he'd gone public and said, no, there's no chance of that happening. And then six weeks or so later, he's sat in front of the media announced as a Real Madrid player. And then the other thing is that this had happened not that long before. So even though it was kind of unthinkable, the Barcelona dominance uh, of the, the previous great team, the Johan Cruyff team, had ended when Michael Laudrup had been poached across and not long after you know, Real Madrid's kind of dearth ended and they finally won the league again. So I wonder if there was a sense of, oh, no, not again going on in that Barcelona thing. And that's why the the visceral nature of it came through even stronger and probably was at its at its worst. I don't think I've seen it that bad again. Yeah, no, I mean, it's I, I guess, you know, there's the the atmosphere of I mean, the atmosphere of the Pep Guardiola Mourinho Classicos with Ramos getting himself sent off every game, <laughs> you know, was, was like, th- those were some unbelievably hostile games of football. Um, but in terms of the fans, yeah, I think maybe this might have been the, um, the peak of the vitriol for sure. But it, it's it's remarkable to think that, you know, having, you know, having poached Figo in, in the way that they did, you know, paying 62 million euros for him, uh, the next thing that happens is that, you know, Zinedine Zidane, who by this point is widely acknowledged as the, the best player in the world, um, having been unbelievably successful at Juve for, you know, for five years, then goes over to Real Madrid again in a world record fee, um, 77 million euros. And uh, that, that ends up being the... Um, world record transfer fee for for the eight years after that and um so now you've got a midfield of Makaledi, Figo, Solari and Zidane with Raul and Morientes the the homegrown boys up front and Roberto Carlos and Michel Salgado bombing down the bombing down the flanks as fullbacks with uh, the old man Hierro still still captain from centre half so probably Julio Cesar's side in goal, like it, it was an unbelievable all-star lineup, and you can see where the Galacticos tag comes from. But Zidane, what a player! How how do you even sum up how good Zidane was at his at his peak? Because it's funny, because I think you know now if you were to talk to younger football fans like about Zidane, they they might have seen him headbutt someone, and they maybe might have seen. They might have seen his, his his goal that wins that Champions League game against um, Leverkusen, but uh, you know he's he's one of those players. I think it's almost it's almost hard to describe his style because it was so different to any kind of playmaker you'd see today. He was a big dude as well, you know, and that's yeah, you, you, you see it every now and again, don't you? But you know, the skill he had, the ability to take over a game and just control it. And he could do everything. He could do absolutely everything on the pitch. Absolutely the best player, the most skillful player in the world at that point. And he's he's banged in two headers in a World Cup final. You know, <laughs> it, it's it, it's all you know. I guess I don't know. He, he he could do everything, couldn't he? He could. He really was an absolutely complete footballer with genius all over him. Could absolutely turn a game in a minute did the most outrageous thing it's like every time I'm I'm thinking even now talking about it 
I think of a player that I want to compare him to and it's almost coming out of my mouth and then I'm like, yeah, but that player can't do that. He's almost like three or four different absolute world-class players rolled the into only, one. The only way I could describe him as being like an angry Glenn Hoddle. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, like he sort of, he had... Sweaty he had, Glenn Hoddle. <laughs> he had that sort of, because like you say, Maz, he had he had such physicality to his game. Like he wasn't, you know, he was not above stamping on somebody or elbowing somebody in the face. Like famously got sent off in the the marks to the uh, World Cup final in 98, you know, and obviously famously got sent off in a final of the World Cup, um, you know, eight years later. So he, you know, he... There you go, he, I've got it. He's Dennis Burkamp and Alan Shearer. There you go. He's, but he's, he's got that, yeah, it's the thing, he had that, that sort of nasty side to his game. Gary Neville has said in the past, you know, he was horrible to play against because he was so big, he was so balanced, you know, all those kind of ballet spins that he used to do. Um, there's one really, like, funny one where um, I think it's when Nedved still, is still playing for, for Lazio and um, and Zidane's playing for Juve and Nedved's trying to press in and then Zidane just sends Nedved for a hot dog and then, like, you know, it's this brilliant footballer just basically looking like a complete mug and Zidane kind of just steps on the ball and pirouettes past him. He was just a you know consummate playmaker and mm. you know could just absolutely run a game like nobody else at the time could. I think the thing that sums it up best for me is I, I don't think I've ever seen this done on somebody else. They may have done it since. He's the first person I saw where some documentary filmmakers took a game where they just took the cameras and just put them on Zidane. Kind of like this guy player cam that they used to do back in the 90s but they did this as art you know to watch Zinedine Zidane just play a game of football by himself was presented as art and that was something that we haven't seen before people spoke about Zidane in a way that you didn't talk about other players because he had as balletic as the most balletic of footballers but with the power of the most powerful of footballers and with the technique to match I mean if he'd been more consistent we may be talking about him not just as the best player in the world at the time, but the best player ever. And I don't think that's an overstatement, to be honest. I mean, just in some of those moments, it was breathtaking. I mean, it's, it's, what's all the more interesting as well is from an English perspective, you know, when he first broke into the France side, sort of ahead of Euro 96, he was kind of viewed with quite a lot of suspicion because the the narrative here was how on earth can Kansnar and Genona not get in the France team because they've both been exiled for being too individual and um, Houdet didn't trust them. You know, Genola uh, supposedly the legend is that you know he was responsible for France not qualifying for the uh, for USA '94, and so you know they were kind of both of them were exiled. They couldn't be trusted. You know, they but but, you know, they were still both both of them brilliant footballers pulling up trees in the Premier League. Both their France careers ended before their peak, really. Um, and so Zidane and Jorkev and um, that generation that, that kind of ended up winning the World Cup, you know, they weren't viewed as as sort of what they would become viewed as. 
but I think people very quickly realised when they saw Zidane play and obviously you know we got to watch him play for Juve every week because of Serie A being on Channel 4 and, and you know and free to air it was very obvious what a good player he was and um, you know he just went to Real Madrid and achieved that success all over again you know he won a you know Champions League with Juventus won one with Real Madrid won a World Cup he kind of if, if even if you're just doing purely the put your medals on a table Alan Hansen argument you know he does pretty well there too so yeah he, he was some statement signing by then and a great story about how they pulled it off too with the Perez passing the napkin across the table to him with do you want to play for Real Madrid written on it <laughs> and he just writ, wrote yes or we or C or whatever back on it and passed it and a few weeks later you know, and 70 million quoted later it was done so yeah yeah and I think Juve at that time I think they were you know happy to take the money and reinvest it you know they they definitely got their um got their money's worth from over that over that period of time when he was playing for them too so yeah it's 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 interesting like obviously Zidane would go on to to be a Real Madrid manager as well and I think there's a lot of speculation that he'll probably take the Juve job at one time as well you know if he's going to take another job in football it'll probably be that one it's just another example, though, as we can see, you know, this move from Juventus to Real Madrid of the football axis shifting away yes. from Italy and, you know, Real Madrid really coming at the centre of Spain being, in, you know, the, the dominant place to go and place to watch football. And I think that's why we start seeing more of Spain around this kind of time. Definitely. And, and, and you know, obviously this is the team now then in 2002 that go, that this is the Galacticos team that do win the Champions League. And I must say 2001, 2002, Champions League season is probably my favourite in, you know, had, featured an absolutely brilliant Bayer Leverkusen team led by by a, a young Michael Balak who were thrilling and brilliant in their own right. You know, Deportivo La Coruña, you know, that period of time when they were, were doing really well. This Real Madrid side as well. And that final between... Leverkusen and, and uh, Real was was brilliant, but obviously it featured one of the very best goals ever to grace a final with Zidane's volley. You know, the ball is by a conservative estimate about a hundred miles in the air, and he literally <laughs> just pivots <laughs> and you know smashes it. Uh, it was some goal. Is it the best of the Champions League era in a final? I guess I... you've got you've got the bail, maybe the bow overhead kick. But but no yeah this is that one is my favourite <laughs> yeah, yeah def- definitely Zidane and go go check out the uh, uh, a new Twitter feed that I found uh, a couple of weeks ago which is called Stop That Zizu which is uh, you start going down that timeline oof, there's a rabbit just, hole you'll just, never come out of yeah <laughs> just, just gifts of filthy uh, Zidane moments and, and and I think the thing about this team is that it was really well balanced at this point. Because when you think about the Galacticos, right, you think about it being, you know, no tactics, just vibes. And it wasn't that at this time. You know, you had this kind of diamond in midfield of, of, of McAlady, Figo, Solari and Zidane. You had Raul uh, and Morientes up top. So, you know, like a, a kind of a, a nine and a half Raul, wasn't he? You know, he wasn't, he wasn't just a striker. He could lay it on as well. And Morientes was your your target man so i was going to say about uh raul somewhat harry kane-esque for the modern fan i guess is a decent fan you know the ability to play nine and ten in one role he definitely had that ability uh trying to it, it, raul was just a, com- a really complete player wasn't he 
I mean, Suarez a little bit hmm. would be um, a decent Raul comparison with it. Yeah, obviously, Raul was not dirty in the way that Suarez is, but but yeah, you know. I think that's actually a pretty good comparison. Yeah, he 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 was the total forward, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, maybe maybe a little less swaggering than Suarez. Maybe a little yeah. more just kind of um, classically ruthless rather than efficient. Absolutely, yeah, 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 very much so. But you know that this is the thing about this team is you've got those those this, those kind of you know big money signings. But you know Raúl, Morientes, Iero, you know Salgado, they all they were all homegrown players. And obviously Roberto Carlos had been there for forever at, at that point. You know he'd been there since yeah, the mid nineties as well. You know, mm. um, so Casillas isn't here yet, um, so it's still Cesar and goal at this time. So was he? Was he, was he not he, on he the bench at this point? Yeah, because he, 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 he came in as, at like seventeen, didn't he? And everyone was hailing him as the best thing, and then he kind of lost his place. But was that a couple of years later? Am I? He's kind of on his way at this point, isn't he? So he's not right. quite got into the got into the sort of uh, the first eleven at this point, but he's certainly coming. You're definitely um, right about the balance, though, because there's a little bit of warning of what's to come when they sign Zidane at the start of the season, because all the talk is, well, he plays for Juventus in a position that we don't have in this team. And, you know, he kind of I think he must have been playing more as a kind of conventional number 10, whereas, you know, the, the license to Rome would have been Guti, if I'm remembering right. It was kind of more up in a, as a part of a two. So there was this kind of psychodrama about how Zidane was going to fit into the team and that wasn't helped when they didn't win any of the games but eventually because these are all quality players and there's still a strong base there they sort it out and they go on to win things and this is a team capable of gutting it out as they have to do when they lose the first leg to Bayern Munich and they have to go back and win at home in in the second leg so this as you say is balanced it's capable of not just being a side that does all the beautiful things it can they can win ugly they can win in difficult situations and there's still a certain amount of of grit and and shape but there's hints even at this point of what is to come and i think yeah this, the next season is perhaps the last kind of hurrah before they all start to catch up well it's it's i think you know makaleli we really should spare a, a word for for Claude makaleli um you know one of the more unheralded players um, in that team, and then he ends up being so important that that uh, a position was named after him. You know, the idea of the Makaleli role, because really the idea of this sort of hard-working defensive midfield player that literally just did nothing but just cover the pitch and cut things out, you know, it didn't exist really in quite the way that Makaleli interpreted it. And since then, you've seen it kind of replicated time and time again with maybe Kante being his kind of, you know, most apt uh, apt pupil at present. Um, but he made that Real Madrid team much more, you know, solid than they otherwise would have been. And when he went to Chelsea, because he was basically, why am I the lowest paid player in this team? That's when really they... They lost something they couldn't get back. Do you know what, is it Jorge Valdano said to him when he went in and asked for that raise? He said, uh, you should be pleased to play for Real Madrid for free. That is what got to be like, whoever that guy was who said, didn't sign the Beatles because guitar bands wouldn't make any money in the 60s. I mean, that's got to be one of the worst football decisions I've ever heard. 
and he went to Chelsea, of course, and um, won everything you know, and, and did very, very well. Absolutely. So so basically, yeah, we, we kind of post th- the third European Cup win, you know, in the space of five years. So if you're Perez at this point, you think, well, you know, it's, it's all paying off. And then they get the opportunity to sign the original uh, Ronaldo from uh, Inter Milan, um, which they do in in 2000, uh, 2002, following Brazil's uh, World Cup win. Um, so 108 million. Uh, sorry, that's that's sorry, that's, that's the figure for um, Ronaldo and Figo together. So um, Ronaldo, 45 million at that point from Inter, which is kind of when you think about where Ronaldo was in, in, in 98, that's still that's a bit of a cut price figure when you think about probably what he what he would have cost if he had tried to sign for Minter, you know, in, in, in sort of 98 or 99. But of course, at this point, Ronaldo had had a, a lot of injuries and he weren't quite signing the same player, even if he was still brilliant. So, I mean, obviously, I think, you know, when I think Ronaldo, I always think of Inter. You know, I don't I don't think of Madrid so much, even though he was there. He was actually there about the same um, about the same amount of time. But I always think of him as, as, as being at his peak um, at Inter but one game I just wanted to talk about because it, it gets replayed a lot and it was a sensational game was the um, the two-legged tie I think it was a quarter-final between United uh, and Real Madrid um, and in the second leg Ronaldo scored a hat-trick at Old Trafford and uh, was a, afforded the very rare honour of being applauded off the pitch by United fans having absolutely torn to bits you know and Ferguson said after that game it was one of the the greatest performances that stadium had ever seen. A stadium that's obviously seen performances from George Best and Dennis Law and you know all the you know greats of the modern era I mean obviously. Bill Jones. (laughs) Um, Well they hadn't at that point I guess. Darren Ferguson. Hey, <laughs> we all go comes back round. No, you're absolutely spot on about that game, though. I mean, and this is broken knee, broken down, but still capable of scoring eighty odd goals for Madrid as a fraction of the player that he that he had been at Inter. I mean, he was never quite so exciting, but he was just as lethal in a weird kind of a way. Yeah, I mean, he could still finish, and that that that's the key. You know, you look at. I think I think it, it it's fair what what Neil was saying there you know Inter was undoubtedly his prime Barcelona was his young years Real was his old years and you know he had that explosiveness was was there for everyone to see when when he was at Barca and he could still absolutely destroy you with, with a little burst here and there a little run here and there and with some insane finishing at Real but yeah, if that was all there together for a, for a good long time at Inter, but yeah, you know he 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 didn't lose everything certainly, and was well worth forty five billion of of anyone's money at that point. Yeah, it's, it's, it was it was such a such a sensational. Well, actually, both legs were sensational, really, because even you know the first um the first leg um Raúl scored two brilliant goals. And that was that was kind of three one. The United won sort of four three on the night here, but obviously, you know, went out on aggregate. And um, it, it, it was just a couple of brilliant games of football. And uh, it obviously had um, a 
unintended side effects because of course this is where the problems between David Beckham and Alec Ferguson come to a head and having witnessed this kind of Galacticos performance at Old Trafford in uh you know at first hand Beckham then becomes the next Galactico so uh Beckham at Real Madrid you know we're talking uh blonde ponytail David Beckham now Ferguson of course was always very astute in knowing when it was time to move players on you know there was a sense of of the two of them having fallen out but were were Madrid just signing a name at that point in 2000 and you know what was it 2003-4 were they signing David Beckham for the commercial appeal were they signing David Beckham because he was a good footballer without wanting to say anything about him as a footballer because I think he's still a good footballer for a long time after this yes they were signing him for the commercial appeal because you don't get rid of because this is the point that McAlealy leaves. There's no money left for his contract because of the Beckham signing. Is That's the official reason that Perez gives McAlealy. So they end up playing. And this is the thing that really brings it home for me. I see a lineup where they're trying to get all these attacking options, these superstars into the team. And you can't drop any of them because that harms their commercial value and they've paid all this money. They end up paying playing a lineup where the midfield pivots are David Beckham who obviously otherwise would have to play in Figo's place and you can't see that happening and Guti who a couple of years earlier had been playing up front there's no defensive stability at all anymore and that eventually leads to the signing of Thomas Gravison so um, yeah (laughs) Gravison the real Galactico Um, there's a hilarious Gravison story actually isn't there about how he he wanted to go around and headbutt everybody like as you know sort of this sort of um you know, this kind of Viking, Viking sort of like psych, psych yourself up, warm up when he walked around Madrid's training ground trying to head for people. <laughs> Zidane might have been up for that, but I can't say too <laughs> yeah. many of the others. So, um, but, but, you know, Beckham, one of the reasons that Beckham actually gave about going to Madrid was that Ferguson would never play him in central midfield. Um, and he wanted to play in central midfield. Madrid did play him in central midfield. But, I mean, even though, you know, Beckham had a great engine, he got up and down, always did his defensive work, you certainly would not have said that, yeah, he was a pivot or uh, any kind of number, any kind of number six, really. Like, he, he just you know, he, he just wasn't, he just wasn't that kind of a player. No, um, exactly. And I, I think, I, I think in theory... David Beckham playing in, in, in central midfield works a lot. I mean, if David Beckham was coming through a day, I think he'd 100% be a central midfielder. He's not that run to the line, cut inside type of winger. He was a very different type of winger. He, he, he'd, he'd run that wing, but, you know, he was all about whipping those balls in. And if you're dealing with two central midfielders, maybe he becomes a luxury in there. If you're in an age where you've got three... He could, could he could control the game in there. I, I, I always thought I'd love to say see David Beckham play that that old um, you know the German sweeper role. I thought he'd be interested in that as his career went on, but you know it just it wasn't a thing by that point. But yeah, I mean to your question, you are signing David Beckham. You're not going to lose money on that because the commercials, the shirts that he's going to sell alone are going to be insane. Even if you're Real Madrid. And you're already selling an insane amount of 
of shirts. But yeah, you know, where do you put him? And you know, <laughs> in central midfield with Gutty is not the <laughs> it, it, it is not the place. That's not your engine room. It, I don't I don't think even Ozzy would have done that. <laughs> I'm, not well. I'm not quite so sure about that. Probably would have had, uh, you know, probably had, you know, Figo playing right back or something. That's what um, he did. That, that's what they needed to sign Nevercott, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, very much the, um, very much the Darren Ferguson of that episode. But I think, you know, Beckham actually, he, he played some good football for Real Madrid. But yeah, you know, Ferguson wasn't wrong, was he? Because United had those few, you know, those few shaky years, and then he he built that new team around around Rooney and Ronaldo, and I guess he just didn't see Beckham fitting into that. So he he, he knew when to move a player on, didn't he? Um. So so interestingly, we then get another English Galactico uh, not long after that. So uh, the season afterwards, we get Michael Owen. And they get him for the cut price of nine million because uh, I guess his contract was running down. And, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? Nobody feels sorry for Michael Owen because he's just he's always just come across as being, you know, a bit of a sort of unsympathetic figure. But certainly when I've seen him talk more recently about those injuries that he has at Liverpool and how he kind of just felt like he was half the player he had been. You know, as that that unbelievably exciting teenager, you know, I I think I probably over the years have developed a bit more empathy for him. And he didn't, you know, he didn't play a tremendous amount of games for Madrid because of the amount of injuries that he had. But, you know, from what I understand, when he, you know, when he did play, he he played well and he he scored goals as as, as Michael Owen did. But um he tells a story about how he's on, he's in the taxi on the way to the airport and he rings Carragher, who was his roommate at Liverpool, and said, I don't want to go, but I have to. I feel like I've got no choice. I suppose he got the impression that Liverpool didn't really, didn't really want to pay his wages on a new contract. And so therefore he kind of felt like he had to go, even though he kind of knew that football wise, it, it might not work out for him. A- any thoughts on, on Michael Owen there? I remember the kind of rundown of this time at Liverpool and it was always kind of because Liverpool were, had done gone as far as they could go really was the, the feeling with, with Juli. I, had, I don't think the sense was that Owen was going to be around for another rebuild and obviously as it turned out he only needed to hang on one more year and he would have been part of the, the Istanbul miracle but uh, obviously no one can tell the future quite like that and I recall that a lot of it was just Yes, the injuries were playing a part, but wasn't it just for some reason he, they didn't fancy him in Madrid and it didn't seem to matter how many goals he scored, he just couldn't get a run in the team. Even when he was fit and he was just on the bench and there was a sense very quickly of, oh, why have we bought Michael Owen when we have X, Y and Z? And and the more the team struggled generally, he almost became a bit of a scapegoat in a sense, even though it clearly had nothing to do with him. You know, that's, that's my recollection of it. And I, yeah, yeah, as a sense, I suppose we don't feel sorry for Michael Owen on the whole, but I've always felt that he didn't get a fair shake there. And it would have been interesting to see how his career would have gone on had he not been sold back to Newcastle. And I guess for once, it's probably quite a good job that uh, that Joe isn't with us this year because uh, he wouldn't have had anything good to say about <laughs> that whole spell at all. I mean, I guess, well, I, I guess they, 
you know, they, they signed Rubinho not long after that, didn't they? Who was at the time the, the, the next big thing in Brazilian football. And and so, yeah, he's, he, he just ends up his, his face not really um, not really fitting. And of course, unlike, you know, some some players, you know, that, that sort of just seem to fit right into the culture. Um, Owen never it never seemed like he was all that that comfortable um, in Spain, you know, whereas Beckham, you know, I remember Beckham got sent off because, uh, you know, he he called the ref a son of a whore in pidgin Spanish, you know, so Beckham was trying to fit into the local culture, but <laughs> I'm not sure how it was so much. Now, I, I think I remember hearing about them just, you know, just not, despite being two English people, you know, they're just having nothing in common, you know, they're very, very different people. But yeah, I see. I'll, I'll go the other way. I do feel sorry for Michael Owen because that it's there's a reason why Real Madrid bought him, and that reason might not have been there to that point by the time they actually did. But you know, Michael Owen as a youngster was was genuinely you you looked at him and there was a comparison to to a, a young Ronaldo. I'm not saying it was quite a hundred percent correct comparison, but it was there. His his pace, his burst, his finishing. When he had the ball and would run with it, he, he was really something, and he, he terrorised defenders. You know, and those, those injuries, you know, they they took their toll very very quickly, and he didn't become a bad player overnight. But he wasn't like how Ronaldo was at the end of his career with his injuries building up where he was still that lethal striker. He, he wasn't quite there. He didn't quite have that, that level of finishing ability to his game where he could, he could just do that. So, you know, as the pace, you know, went and with, with the injuries became less and less prominent for him, you know, he, he did kind of fade away and it's, it's always hard to see that happen to a player who who's, so good at a, a certain point, you know. But for me, it was seeing it with Overmars that was was really hard to watch. You know, thankfully not while he was still playing for us. But you know, it, it, it's one of those things, and I I think that was it with um with, with Owen. And yeah, I, I did feel sorry for him, even though he does come across as a bit of a knob. I think to be fair to Owen, he he actually was a very good fox in the box for quite a long quite a long time. Like he was still knocking in goals for England basically just playing as a as a box striker yeah, you know well I mean, into good. well into good. like 07 08 but 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 he good I but think, not what he could have been no absolutely absolutely yeah. but but very I good think very good but not what he could have been he feels I think his his feeling was that that yeah when he he lost that and it's not like he ever got slow but when he lost that explosive burst of pace um, he felt like he he wanted to do things on the pitch instinctively, but he couldn't anymore. Is how he describes it. I think you know it comes to his Madrid is his time at Madrid. He only played forty five games. Um, he scored sixteen goals in those games. As Pete says, a lot of those games started from the bench. You know, Rubinho was the kind of um, you know the new shiny toy, and he never kind of yeah he never kind of got there and I think it's really Newcastle where you say things go really really wrong because um you know he he barely started a game we're kind of 
coming towards the close of the initial Galactico era, it should be worth, you know, we should say that obviously uh, Perez then becomes president again in 2009 and um, he, he builds a whole a whole new Galactico setup kicked off by by buying Cristiano Ronaldo, who turns out to be obviously the, um, you know, the, the top goal scorer in, uh, in Real's history. But um, we're, we're looking at the initial Galactico era here. We're kind of in 2006 now and we're kind of coming to a, you know, to a close. But it's, it's worth saying, you know, that as this period of time goes on, they are less and less successful. And there's some quite interesting little nuggets that, that people might not be aware of. In 2004, they were in negotiations to sign Patrick Vieira uh, and they lowballed him on a contract. Um, so he didn't come because, again, as a as a defensive midfield player, they weren't going to pay him what they were paying the attacking players. So that was that seems like a big mistake. You know, mm-hmm. Vieira in 2004 might have been exactly the player they needed. Yeah. Um, they they did sign an aging Walter Samuel. Uh, Thomas Graveston, as previously mentioned, Jonathan Woodgate with his, you know, with his uh, piano string hamstrings. Now, that's a player I feel sorry for. Speaking uh, of injuries, yeah. Uh, and again, well, I mean, he, he should have been one of the, the, the great English central defenders. But yeah, his his body just didn't cooperate. Cicinho, who remembers him? Uh, Carlos Diogo, who sounds like, you know, somebody that you've just regened on Championship Manager. And Pablo Garcia. So, you know, all these players were essentially flops. They did sign uh, Sergio Ramos, who, of course, would, would end up being you know, instrumental to the next Galacticos era. But of course, was still a youngster at, at this point. There was a lot of messing around as well with with managers. You know, Perez interfering as, as, as Perez uh, tends to. Uh, most interestingly of all, they passed up on the opportunity to sign uh, Ronaldinho uh, when he went to Barcelona uh, because they felt he was too ugly <laughs> <laughs> and therefore would not have commercial appeal. Well, I think we'll uh, talk about the merits or lack of, them, <laughs> of that decision next time out, right? Exactly. I thought well, it's I a, ain't got no alibi for that decision. It, it was a, a good, um, I thought it was a, a nice segue to lead us on to next week where we will be discussing um the the frank reichard barcelona side um of the early to mid 2000s yes ronaldinho um not suitable for real madrid uh you know on on grounds of uh of lack of good looks um so that was something of a questionable uh decision really um so let's That's just why they got rid of campo it makes sense now <laughs> So yeah, to, to 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 sum up then the Galacticos era, like you know, any wider points about how it changed football? Did it change football? I mean, can we draw a line, for example, between this and what ends up happening at, at Chelsea under Abramovich? You know, is there is is there something about the Galacticos? Because obviously, inflated transfer fees had been a part of football for a good while by this point, but. This did seem to be an escalation, which then, you know, Chelsea took a step further, um, you might argue. Would that be a fair point? Yeah, I think any time you've got a club free spending like that, it's going to have an effect on the market as the people who want to be seen in their bracket have to 
if not match them, at least kind of come up to their league. So I think it's a big part of transfer fees going crazy. I mean, when we talk, yeah, I mean, when we talk about some of these fees, like for Figo and Zidane, it's worth remembering five years earlier, Alan Shearer was a world record transfer at 15 million. So this has happened in five years, you know, these 2000, 2001s, that kind of ballpark. The other thing that I think it's changed football on is it's a huge step towards it being a business because there's real questions about how much success of a success this project actually was if you think about how much they've won for the outlay did it even work quite that's a huge question to end on so it's probably the wrong time to introduce it but it is a a valid question i think whereas from a commercial perspective it turned real madrid for a long time into the most profitable club in the world so it obviously worked if, if your goal is to make money so did it work well, it'll kind of your answer to that will depend on, you know, what you think a football club is there for and what they're going to do. And I guess that's another thing to look forward to kind of next week because we're bringing more philosophies into it when we think about Barcelona. Yeah, I guess for Real Madrid, did this policy make them the biggest club again? And I, I think you'd probably have to say it did. So from that point of view, it succeeded. However, for the amount of money they spent was, you know, one Champions League and two league titles. Was that enough? Um, I guess with any kind of conversation about Real and Barca, you have to take on the fact that they're going to obviously always be trying to one up each other. And, um, you know, they'll be cannibalising each other's potential, you know, potential success. Um, And I guess that's what we what we see with the, you know, the rise of the the Ronaldinho Barca that we'll be discussing next time. Any, any, any other closing thoughts? I was just going to say, I mean, how many kids win, lose or draw that watch Real Madrid through that era and watch the likes of Figo, Zidane, Ronaldo, Beckham playing for them and fell in love with football and fell in love with Real Madrid then and uh, our fans to this day probably. Of, of that football club just because of what what they what they bought in the superstars they bought in probably a lot there's probably a lot just in in, in this country alone and certainly at their best you know it was a team that played some absolutely sparkling football their form in the 0102 and 0203 seasons um in europe you know they played some absolutely uh unbelievable stuff and um for somebody like, you know, for players like Raul and Hierro that had been there through thick and thin, it was, it's always great to see those players get their success. So um, next time, as we said, we're going to be talking about uh, about Barcelona um, of roughly the same time period. Uh, so join us for that. Uh, we'll, we'll get to talk about, you know, some Brazilians and uh, and, and some Return to uh, a club's core philosophy, I I suppose, as Pete mentioned earlier on. So do join us for that and uh, we'll see you next time.